Christian Lord. Lord, I pray right now that what we are not yet, you would conform us into for your glory and the fame of your name, Jesus Christ. And it is in that beautiful name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Please remain standing for the reading of the word. Good morning, church. 1 Peter 2, 11 through 25. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will honor God when he judges the world. For the Lord's sake, submit to all human authority, whether the king as head of state or the officials he has appointed. For the king has sent them to punish those who do wrong and to honor those who do right. It is God's will that your honorable lives should silence those ignorant people who make foolish accusations against you. For you are free, yet you are God's slaves. So don't use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. Respect everyone and love the family of believers. Fear God and respect the king. You who are slaves must submit to your masters with all respect. Do what they tell you, not only if they are kind and reasonable, but even if they are cruel. For God is pleased when, conscious of his will, you patiently endure unjust treatment. Of course, you get no credit for being patient if you are beaten for doing wrong. But if you suffer for doing good and endure it patiently, God is pleased with you. For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example, and you must follow his steps. He never sinned, nor ever deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds, you are healed. Once you were like sheep who wandered away, but now you have turned to your shepherd the guardian of your souls. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jamie. You may be seated. Grab your Bibles. Find 1 Peter. Wow, that was a powerful word spoken uh, beautifully. Um, Find 1 Peter. We are in week four of this series um, that we're calling Stand Firm as Hope-Filled Foreigners. And I asked you last week, what was the greatest... um, detriment or the greatest danger to the gospel in America. And what we agreed upon, I think, at the end of that time was that the greatest danger to the gospel is not the loss of religious liberty in our nation, but the greatest danger to the gospel is the church, that we have become kind of lukewarm and not steadfast. And it's interesting that last night on my Twitter feed, which I almost never get on, Russell Moore, who many of you may know that name, he is the president or the um, or the head of what's called the Ethics and Religious Liberty Council, the ERLC or something like that. Right, where he's known for stand like his his whole job, his whole organization is to help stand for religious liberty in our nation. And he tweeted out last night that the greatest threat to 
Christianity in America today is that the church, Christians, have started have, have seen Christianity as user-friendly. That, that Christianity is a means to an end. And that because it feels like we're losing, that means is no longer working. And so the church is becoming even less and less engaged than it's ever been. And I thought, man, how prophetic of that. You know, we've been praying for revival for over two years now. And we've seen it happening. Remember, revival is not big numbers. Revival is a movement of God's spirit. And we've seen that happening in individual lives and in our church gatherings. And, I, and we're praying that it would continue to happen, not just at our church, but in the church. But I stole this from somebody. I don't remember who it was even, but here's, here's what they said about revival. The great reformation and revival will happen the same way the early Christians conquered Rome. Their program of conquest consisted largely of two elements, gospel preaching and being eaten by lions, a strategy that has not yet captured the imagination of the contemporary church. Guys, remember, Peter wrote this letter that we're in during a time of, of suffering and persecution that, that we have never seen, and that frankly, even in places in the world where, where Christians are being beheaded, in, in the world, it was worse in Peter's day. I mean, they at least were, aren't, as far as we know, they're not being impaled and used as human torches for, the, for like the, part, the garden parties of the emperor. That's what was happening to Christians in Peter's day. We have to remember, like, he, this is not sort of a pie in the sky, like, you know, okay, Peter, easy for you to say. What we're reading the last three weeks and this week was not easy for Peter to say. Right? He gets it. Guys, suffering was not theory to Christians. It never has been. Why would it be when, when, when the one we serve and the one we look to is a suffering servant, Jesus Christ? Why would we expect differently? And, so, and, and yet, somehow, we have managed to expect something different. Right, so we're looking at this idea of standing firm as hope-filled foreigners. And what we've already looked at over the last few weeks is we've looked at this idea of how we want to stand firm in, in God's great salvation, how we want to stand firm in God's truth, how we want to stand firm on Christ's cross. This week we're going to look at how we stand firm in death to self. And I'll tell you right now, this is not going to be a popular message, right? It, because I didn't like it either. And, and I've already run through it a few times in my head as the Lord was, it was taking me through my study time. It's just, it is the truth. If you have a problem with what you hear today. Now, first of all, if, if it's something that isn't scriptural, then don't listen to it. And that's part of why we want to be training you guys to, be, to know how to teach the word of God. So that you know, like the Bereans, how to filter what is being said to you, whether it's from here or from your, your Twitter feed, through a biblical lens that is accurate. But if it's not biblical, don't listen to it. But if it is biblical, I would ask you to submit to it. Right? And, and here's, here will be the challenge. There will be things that Peter is going to tell us today. Not Doug. Peter is going to tell us today that are not going to sit well in your spirit. But it's because we have become more shaped by the culture around us than by the word. And, and guys, it's, it's, it's because, frankly, we spend far more time in the culture around us than we do the word. And what you fixate on, you migrate towards. And so with that, because I'm, I'm already like 
making my long introduction a longer, an even longer introduction, what we're going to look at today, the big idea for today, the big question we're going to look at today is, within a culture that seems to be turning against us more and more, how now shall we live? In this culture, that, in, in this country, like no other time in, in my 52 years, we are seeing the tide turn against Christianity really for the first time. I mean, it started turning like in the 70s and 80s, but it's turning. The pace of turn is so rapid now, right? Like, like even the people that, that, that were left, like that were liberal during the election are not liberal enough now for what's going on in our nation. And they're having to move left. That's how fast things are turning in our country. But guys, we can stand firm because we're not standing on the morality of our country. We're standing on the truth of God's word. And and we have to constantly wash our minds with that. So what the passage is going to show us, and this is what you're not going to like, so I'm just going to tell you right now, it's going to, what Peter's going to tell us is we need to be known for standing for Christ Right? Not against the world. I've said this many times here. We, Christians, unfortunately, have become, known, have become better known for what we stand against than who we stand for. The second thing he's going to show us is that we need to stand rightly and not for our rights. And the last thing is we need to stand in his footsteps and not stray back to ourself. So I'm going to pick it up, actually, in verse 11 of chapter 2. We worked our, we've worked our way through the first couple of chapters almost, and, we're, and we finished up in verse 11 and 12 last week. I didn't do it justice, but I want to start there before we get to kind of officially our first point of standing right, um, standing, for, standing for Christ and not, for, um, for, or not against the world. But look at verse 11 of chapter, of chapter 2. So kind of by way of review, and because it sets the table for not just this week, but what you're actually going to hear over the next three weeks, Peter says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So right, so right away he's saying, he's saying, Beloved. That word beloved there is agapio. It's where we it's agape. You've heard that, that idea of love. It's not, it's not warm, romantic love. It is deep, true, like unwavering love. He's saying, you are beloved of God. Oh, by the way, sojourners and exiles. Remember verse 1 of 1 Peter, he called us elect exiles. He's like, guys, as people who are deeply loved of God, who know that this place is not your home, uh, not your home, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And then he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles. That's just the people that, that are not in his vernacular now with the church age started would be the people that are not yet saved. I think the way the New Living translated the way Jamie read it was your, your unbelieving neighbor, right? Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that they, when they speak evil against you, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Here's what's interesting about that passage. The word that the ESV translates honorable there at the beginning of verse 12 and the word that it translates good at the, sort of the second half of verse 12 are the same word in Greek, kalon. It's just the word for good. So what, you could, what, what Peter is telling us is live a good life that can be seen through good deeds. So let your life reflect what you say you believe. And, and then he says this, 
So that, and here's the, here's the so, so what? Okay, so, like we, so what's the big deal? Here, here's the big deal. It's not just so that you'll be seen as a good person or be seen as a moral person. It's so that you'll be seen as a person who is different and might lead someone else to Christ. How do I know that? Because look at what he says. He says, and that, that they may see your good deeds, right? This is like Matthew 5.16, where, where, where he says that, that you are to um, glorify God, that they might see your good deeds and glorify God who is in heaven. But, guys, that word, that they might glorify God on the day of visitation. Some of your commentary, some, of, some people will have translated that as meaning the day of judgment. I, I don't believe, in other words, when, Pete, when, when Jesus comes back again, I don't believe that's what Peter is saying here. Because the way Peter would describe that any other time would be like something like the great day of the Lord. That's not what he's saying here. When he's talking about the day of visitation, it's the same term, it's the same Greek verb or Greek word that's used in um, Acts 15, 14, where he says, and that, that the Holy Spirit might visit them and bring God's salvation. The day, the day of visitation in Acts 15, 14 is the day the Holy Spirit shows up and saves somebody. Ultimately, what Peter's saying here is, let your good life be seen by your good deeds, your love, your, 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 the, spirit, the fruits of the Spirit, so that the whole reason for it is so that people would come to be faith in Christ. That's what he's, he's talking about is that way you will, will your life, here's ultimately what it amounts to, guys. Is your, if, is your life leading people to Christ? If all anybody did, this is, I wrote this in my journal this morning. If all anybody did was follow me around for three days, would my life lead them to Jesus? And I don't know that the answer is yes, guys. Like that, that's what Peter is asking us right here. He's saying, can your life lead people to him? Ultimately, the question that Peter is pressing into us, back to that idea of like the, pro, the, the biggest threat to the, or to the gospel today is the church. The question he's asking us today is, are you a threat to the gospel? Like, is your life a living threat to the gospel. Because if people saw it, they would be like, and they hear you're a Christian, they would look and they'd go, now what we've, they would look and they go, yeah, no, there's something disconnected there. But here's the problem. We've, here's what we've turned that into. We've turned that into a whole bunch of behavior. Well, so a, a whole bunch of like anti-behavior. So here's what you're supposed to do. Stop drinking, stop smoking, stop watching that stuff on TV, stop going to the movie theater, stop. We, we've turned it into a whole bunch of don'ts. That's what Christianity became in America, this very moralistic way of living. It's, it's what we're against. We're against all those bad things. <gasps> Gambling, oh no. Now, I'm not here to pass judgment on any and all of those things. I'm here to tell you that what we ought to be known for, and what Peter's telling us, is we ought to be known for following Christ. Right, like, like I don't do things perfectly. I, it doesn't. When, when I say if somebody followed me around for three days, would, would I lead them to Jesus? I don't mean would they would they not see me sin? If they follow, if you follow me around for three days, I'll tell you a little secret. You are going to see me sin. You are. But is the bulk of my life is even how I respond to that sin moment, demonstrating that I am a blood bought, born again believer in Jesus? Or am I just a dude trying to live better than that guy? Right? That's the question Peter is asking us. Now look at, so, so ultimately, all of 
all of verses 11 and 12 are just a setup for what not only what we're going to see for the rest of today, but what we're going to see for, the, for all of the rest of chapter 2, all of chapter 3. This thought carries over from, it carries over from verses 11 and 12 all the way through to the, the start of chapter 4. So what he's saying is, as people who are deeply loved, beloved of God, who know that this place is not your home, who, who, are, who know that how you live is called to lead people to Christ, he's saying, here is what it ought to look like. And he's going to spend the next chapter and a half telling us, and we're just going to spend half a chapter in it today. So the first thing is, your life ought to look like standing for Christ and not against the world. Who you stand for, not what you stand against. He says this, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor, whether it be to the emperor or king as supreme, or to the governors who have who as sent by him to punish those who do evil and do not praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good you would you would put to silence the ignorance of foolish people, guys. When he says be subject to the rulers, like, like really? Like has Peter lost his mind? I mean, these are people, at the time Peter writes this, about 30 years after Christ dies, these are people, like I said earlier, they are being like cruelly, I mean, not just put in prison. They are being tortured. They are seeing their kids like taken away. For, guys, the culture was so immoral. Prostitution was rampant. Child prostitution was rampant in the Roman Empire. So what, how in the world can, can Peter be saying, like, maybe, just, maybe this wasn't a Holy Spirit-inspired moment. Maybe Peter just lost his mind for a minute, and that's really what it is. And we can just take that part. We can, wipe, we can wipe that part out of our Bibles, because right now the politics is turning against us as Christians. So let's just wipe that be subject to the ruling authorities. Except that Paul said it too. Romans 13, he says, be subject to the ruling authorities. Why? Because you know that there is no one in power. Romans 13, 1. There is no authority on earth that was not placed there by God. Now filter that. Like, and, and, as, and as if to make the point even harder, Paul, while he's in prison, like getting ready to be executed, says this to, Tim, or to Titus. He tells Titus, while he's getting ready to be executed, he says, remind them, these are the Christians, he says, remind the Christians, those that say they're Christians, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be people ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Are you kidding me? Like, seriously. Guys, reread that. Is it on the screen? Reread that. Really? Come on, Paul. Be, be, avoid quarreling. Show perfect courtesy towards all people. <gasps> that sounds somewhere between impossible and a whole lot like Jesus. Right? Doesn't it? That's his point. Here's the question. Does that describe your social media feed? Does that describe the conversations you have with your friends around the dinner table? Especially over the last nine months to a year. 
with all the craziness that's been going on in our country. I mean, COVID was just the beginning. Frankly, COVID was the, is the easy part. Honestly. Like, like, I look and I go, does that describe who we are? But guys, we ha- here's what we have to understand. Christianity, if you, if, you, if you get nothing else, if you write nothing else down, get this. It's not going to be on the screen, I don't think. Christianity never won by standing for our rights. Christianity has never won by standing for our rights. Never. In the history of the world. Now you might say, wait a minute, what about the reformers? Right? Martin Luther, those dudes, they were standing. No, they weren't standing for their rights. They were standing for the word of God to be taught. They were not standing. In fact, Luther was apologetic towards the church. Like, he was, he was like, guys, I, my goal is not to harm you. My, he really believed. Martin Luther, the man that started the Reformation, he really believed when he nailed the, his thesis, the 95 thesis to the, to the door, that the church was going to be excited about that. That they were going to go, wow, you finally figured this out. Now, some of you don't know what I'm talking about. What he basically is saying is, it's, it's the word of God that stands supreme. So we need to put the word of God in the hands of ordinary people. And we need to allow, that. we need to let the people know, like we talked about last week, that they are all a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for God's holy, a, a holy nation, a people for God's possession. Not that they have to come to some priest or bishop or whatever. They have direct access to the throne. He really thought, like, this is, man, we've lost this somewhere. I, got, I found it. Let's get after it. He's all excited, and they wanted to kill him. They bring him in multiple times. He finally goes into hiding. But before he does, when he stands, he doesn't stand for his rights. You know what he says? He says, I stand on the word of God, and I can do nothing else. That was it. Is that your attitude? Even when you're presenting the truth, is it, are you, like, that, that is, that is countercultural. Are you doing it from the perspective of, I want to stand for Christ. I want to be known for being, like, Christ-like. And I want to do it in love. And I want to speak the truth in love. Or are you just talking against everything that's wrong? Church historian Bruce Shelley is one of my, in one of my church history classes in seminary. I, I pulled this quote out. He says this. This, is, this was written by an emperor of Rome around the mid-300s. So this is, you know, a 250 years after Peter's alive. But this is, this is before Constantine makes Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. Guys, get this. The Roman Empire. This is the most powerful empire in the history of the world. Where is it today? Where is it? It's a bunch of ruins that you can pay money to go walk around in. You know what's still standing? The Word of God and Christ's church. That's still standing. Wait, wait, what? The most powerful empire in the history of the world. Guys, it makes the United States in our 200 and something years and, 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 and our expanse on the globe look puny. And you know what brought it down? A bunch of Christians. And this dude, the Emperor, Emperor Julian, saw it happening. So he's like, man, i got to stop this flow, and I've got to bring back this pagan religion that had us going good. Man, that was when we were really cranking as Romans. And look at what happened. Look at what he says. It says, when Emperor Julian the Apostate wanted to revive pagan religion in the mid-300s, he gave the most helpful insight into how the church was spread. 
So he's saying, here's how Christianity took over the Roman Empire. This opponent of the faith said that Christianity has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care of others at great risk to themselves. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a... That, that was his... Because in his mind, all of, the conver, all of the Christians were converted Jews. He's like, there's, there's a, not a, a single Jew who is a beggar and that they, the Christians, care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. Because you, know you know what won the Romans, the people of Rome, over to Christianity? The only reason Constantine embraced Christianity was because he didn't want to lose his empire. And the, and the church, in the midst of them being eaten by lions, is exploding like a virus. And they're like, man, the only way we can get a hold of the Constantine after this dude's like, I'm going to embrace this and sort of fold it into our culture before I lose our culture altogether. Which, in a lot of ways, is what started the downfall of the church. Because we started to unite government and Christianity, and that's never a good thing. And I've talked a lot about that over the last few months, and I'm not going to bring it up again, but we've got to stop that. In, we've, we've, those two things are not the same. Christianity and the United States of America are not the same. They just aren't. Two different kingdoms, completely. I said I wasn't going to talk about it. So, <laughs> then he says, while those who belong to us, the Romans, so he's saying the Romans look in vain for help that we should be rendering. The Christians eagerly do it. You know what brought down the Roman Empire, the most powerful empire in the history of the world? The love of Christians towards each other and towards the world around them. That is what will change the culture of our country. That's it. That's the only thing, guys. Christianity has never won by standing up for our rights. Never has. On the, finish it up. On the surface, the early Christians appeared powerless and weak. They were an easy target for scorn and ridicule. They had no great financial resources, no social status, no government approval, no respect from the educators. But what fi- does that not, not sound like today, right? Does that not sound like what's going on today? What, but what finally mattered is what they did have. They had faith. They had fellowship. They had a new way of life. Like they lived different. They had a confidence that their Lord was alive in heaven and guiding their daily lives. These were the important things. It is their love displayed to all people that made all the difference in laying a Christian foundation for all of Western civilization. Their strategy seemed to consist of two things. Preach the gospel and feed the lions. That was it. And it won over the most powerful empire in the world to the point that it no longer existed. And you have to, all you see of it now is ruins. Right? But the church still stands. Why? Because Jesus Christ, it's his church. It's not our church. It's his church. And he told us. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Like no government authority. No, it just isn't going to happen, guys. We have to understand that. We have to believe that. So let's keep going. He says, live as, verse 16, live as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And then as if to double down, guys, get this. He says, verse 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Guys, in this passage, there are five imperatives in the Greek. Imperatives are commands. 
right? They're, they're, the, they're the mood in, in the Greek writing that is like, it's, the way it's written is Peter is saying, of all that I'm writing, you better do these things. Don't question it. Don't doubt it. Just do it. They are, be subject. Be subject to rulers. That's verse 13. And then honor everyone. That's honor. Love, the brotherhood. That's an imperative. Fear God. That's an imperative. Honor the emperor. And I've already belabored this point, but guys, re- like, again, I want to say, like, really? Like, re- like, like not, just, not just submit to him, but honor? Wait, honor the emperor? I told you some of you aren't going to like this. I'm, guys, I'm not happy with our current political situation either. It does not change the truth of Scripture. I am called to pray for and to honor our current president. That's the truth. Boy, he stole the election. Guys, Jesus is all-powerful. If he wanted someone else as our president, he would have taken care of it. Right? And the gates of hell and all of, all of the minions of Satan could not do anything to thwart that. We have to understand that. We have to understand. Guys, I guess I, I want to say, you don't have to do anything, I, I mean, that I tell you. You have, to, you have to come to this realization. I either am going to live my life based on what I hear the culture telling me, meaning like even my Christian culture, I'll just say it, Fox News or whoever you listen to on your YouTube podcasts, or I'm going to listen to what the Word of God has to say. It's really clear right here. I, I, I don't like it either. I feel all the feels. I'm just as frustrated. I am. I'm just as worried about our future as a nation. I, and then I have to stop and go, wait a second. God is in control. I either believe that or I don't. And if I believe that he is, then I ought to do what he tells me to do and not what I feel like doing. So the first thing, so, so the question we're asking is, in this, so, but it doesn't change. As Christians, we're called to live in this culture. Guys, you were born where you are, when you are, on purpose. Right? All of us. So if you're here in America, you're here as an American by God's design on purpose. So that you can do what Scott challenged us with. So that you can do what some of your, you guys were praying for during the prayer time. So that we can lead many to righteousness. Here in America. Or if God calls you overseas, go overseas. But that's what we're here for. So I'm certainly not saying just fold up shop. I'm saying live for Christ. So the first, so how, so how are we now to live? One, we are to stand for, for, up for, like be known for standing for Christ and not against the world. The second thing is we have to stand for what's right and not for our own rights. And that's where he's going to keep going next. Look at verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, so when you're thinking about God, when you're living by the power of the Spirit, when you're in step with the Spirit, you're not fleshing out, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin you are beaten and you endure? But if when you do good and you suffer and you endure, that is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Again, I say, really? Because he isn't, I mean, get what Peter's saying here. He isn't just saying suffer well. He's saying suffer even when you have done nothing wrong. 
In fact, he's saying suffer well, especially when you have done nothing wrong and are standing for the truth of God's word. Guys, I, I'm, I had such a hard time because the word unjust in verses 18 and 19 actually means, it's the Greek word that means bent, broken, it means crooked, it means wrong. Guys, he's, he's not just saying when, you be, when you're treated like poorly, like unfairly. He's saying, he's saying when what you are being treated, like when you, what you're being persecuted for, you know is wrong. Like you know you're in the right. Like, like you're put in prison for preaching the gospel, like the stories that Brian led us in, in in our prayer time. He's like, that guy didn't do anything wrong. He was doing exactly what Christ has called us to do, and he was thrown in prison for it. And he finds it, and he's singing praise songs. Why? Because he knows that's what he's supposed to be doing, according to God's word. And he's suffering for it, and he saw it as a win, not as a loss. Guys, when, when we see people put arrested, and we're going to start seeing that more and more in the West. It's happening in Europe and Canada already. It will start to happen in this country too at some point. When we see that happening, we need to be going, hallelujah, somebody was standing up for the truth. Right? Not going, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? Right? God's in, we, what we do is we go, you know what? We, we, what we do is we keep preaching truth. We let the Lord figure it out. Guys, the best scene of this is the first martyr in all of Christianity. Who was the first person killed for being a Christian? Stephen, do you remember what happens in Acts chapter 7? Right? He is, all he's doing, all he's doing is sharing Jesus with people. So he shares the story of, 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 of the gospel all the way back. He goes through all the way, like we're doing in our D groups. He goes all the way back and he shares the story. And it gets them so enraged, they begin to stone him. But not fast enough, so this dude who becomes the Apostle Paul, <laughs> says, hey, let me hold your coat for you so you can throw those rocks harder. And they stone him to death. And do you remember what Stephen said? What Stephen saw? At the very end, the last two things that Stephen says in Acts chapter, you can read about it yourself, not right now, I'm preaching, but in Acts chapter 7, he says, forgive them. Just like Jesus, he's like, forgive them. Don't hold this against them, God. And then he says, and I see the Lord standing at the right hand of God. And then he dies, and he goes to be with that Lord. What's unique about that? I've talked about this before. What's unique about what Stephen sees? What? Jesus is standing Every other time in Scripture that it talks about Jesus on the throne, it says Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. But when, when you and I are being persecuted for sharing him with the world, you know what Jesus does? He stands up and he goes, come on. Come on. Come on. I'll bring you home. I'll bring you home. Just hang in there. Come on. Guys, I so desperately want that for my life. And I... Almost more desperately, not even almost, I more desperately want it for your life. That's what I heard in Scott's heart. That's what he's pleading. Guys, time is short. Eternity's long. Hell is certain for people that don't know Christ. It's, it's time. 
even if you lose a family member through it, even if you lose a friend through it, even if you get thrown in jail for it, Jesus standing at the right hand of God going, come on, come on. But we don't believe that because we have our eyes on the wrong kingdom. We just do. Right? We don't want to lose the kingdom we have. So we don't even get, we, we've lost sight of the kingdom that is above us. So, how do we live in this culture that's turning against us? First, we have to stand for Christ, be known for standing for Christ and not for standing against the world. Second, we have to stand for what is right and not just for our rights. And the last thing that he's going to say and the last, the last point I'm going to make is that we, um, that we need to stand in his footsteps and not stray back to ourselves. Look at what he says in verse 21. For to this you have been called. Wait, what? Wait, wait, what? What? Like, let's just, I, I, I really, I mean, it, it, what, what is the this we've been called to? Suffering. suffering on, yeah, not just suffering. This is not just, you know, I, I have a, I'm, I, I got COVID and I'm sick or something worse than that. This is not just I'm getting old and my back's going out. This is, this is not that kind of suffering. He's saying you have been called to suffer for doing the right thing. That's what you've been, James, that's what you were born again for. You were born into this place, the United States, at this time, on purpose, for a purpose. You were born again to suffer for doing the right thing. And if you're never suffering, like if you're never getting pushback, the question becomes, if someone were to follow you around for three days, would your life lead them to Christ? So let's keep going. He says, he committed, so, so this he's saying, this, I'm sorry, this is what you've been called, because, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. Guys, do you remember all, the example that you are to follow, that you might follow in his steps? Do you remember John 13? What does Jesus say? He, he, every dude in the room, all 12 of them, because Judas is still there, all 12 guys walk by the basin that they know it's there for a reason. Because every room you go into then for, for dinner would have had one of these basins for somebody to wash their feet. None of them could bring themselves to do it. So the king of the universe gets up from the table and gets down on his knees. And what does he say to them? I've, well, he's, I've, I've not come to be, or to, to be served, but to serve. But he says to them, I have done this as an example for you to do for each other. Are you ready to die to yourself? To get down? To, are you going to walk by the basin and go, yeah, somebody, that's somebody else's deal. Those people, somebody else can share Christ with them. Right? I, that's not my deal. I'm just going to stay over here. Or are you, ready to get, are you ready to get up and get down on your knees and wash the feet of the people who might even betray you. Because that's what Jesus did. 1 John 2 says that those who abide in Christ are to walk in the manner in which Christ walked. 1 John 2.8, I think. Says, walk in the manner in which he walked. That's what Peter is calling us to here. That is not an easy walk. Let's keep going. We'll finish it up. He says, this is what it looks like. He committed no sin, neither his, in, nor was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. 
when he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued to entrust himself into the God who judges justly. Guys, understand, judgment is a New Testament thing. It's not just an Old Testament thing. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, is in the New Testament at least twice. Right? Our job, so, so, so when we see all of this that's going on, and we're like, it's so unfair. Vengeance is the Lord's, not ours. Right? He will make it right. He will. If you don't believe that, let's talk. Let's talk about why, our, why we know our God is a just God. And in the end, he will see justice done. But then he says, but, but I love how he says, but then he continued to entrust himself. But guys, you remember the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the meek, for they shall what? They shall inherit, inherit the earth. And, and guys, I've even heard it taught this way, and it is such a shame, because this is such an American way of that passage. He, they say, well, you know what? Meekness really is power under control. <laughs> it's not. Nowhere else in Scripture does it describe it as that. You know why, we just, you know why it's taught that way? Because it makes us feel better about being jerks. As long as I'm a jerk and I share a little bit of love in there with the gospel, or, hey, you know, by the way, Jesus loves you, you tatted up freak, right? Like, like that, that is not what Jesus means by being meek. It is not power under control. Being meek means being gentle. It means being humble. It means seeing other people as more worthy than you. The one place in all of Scripture Jesus describes his heart. I am gentle and humble of heart. And we are to be like him. That's what meekness means. The last thing, and I finished up, I'll ask the music team to come back up and we'll go into our time of response. He says in verses 24 and 25, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. But by his wounds you have been healed. And we're going to look more at that in the, our time of communion. He says, For you were, you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Guys, you... The question that we're looking at today is, in a culture that, guys, it is, the culture is turning against Christian, like, the, the word of God. But that's only been true in our country. Like, it's, it's always, the world has always been against the word of God. So how now are we to live? In a word, in a single word, I would say love. We are to be known for exceptional, radical, crazy love. How do I know? Because God so loved the world that he gave, so loved the world, so loved the world that he gave, gave, loved, gave, loved, gives his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will never die but have everlasting life. But then we forget the next verse. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world but that the world might be saved through him. Because we know the road is narrow and few find it. Because the path of destruction is broad and most of the world is racing down that road. We, we get that. None of that negates 
God's call on our life. God's call on our life is to love well. John says it this way, and then I'll close. In 1 John 4, he says, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the payment, the satisfaction for our sin. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. We've even made that last part of that verse about us. It's perfected in us. That's not what he means. What John, what the apostle John means when he says, and his love is perfected in us, it means it's made complete. It means it's come full circle. God loved you enough to give his son to die for you so that you can go tell other people about that love. It is only, it is only when we fulfill the so that we go tell other people about that love that the love is made complete. Like every time you share the love of Christ with somebody, whether it's in just loving deeds that, that you say in the name of Jesus or just sharing the gospel story, you are completing that circle in your life. Right? It's, it's what Brian was, he didn't know what we were going to, but it's what Brian shared. He said, it's like, it's like being saved, like Jesus saves. It's in a whole different, like it's, it's so much deeper and richer. Yeah, Jesus saves. If you, you share the gospel with somebody and they come to faith in Christ, Jesus saved them. And he saved you in the midst of that in a very real way. How? By the verse we're just reading. Remember, you were saved. You are being saved. And you will be saved. So how do we get from there to there? By completing that circle over and over and over again. Every time you share the love of God with somebody, you are closing the circuit. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you, Lord, for the truth that you have left us here as ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All of us. It is not my job to proclaim the gospel. It's not Brian's job or Scott's job or Jeff's job. It is our job. From the youngest to the oldest. If we are in Christ, you are in us. It's the most, it's the most used phrase in our relationship. We are called to give you away. So that we might receive more of you. So that our salvation might even become more rich, more true, more just real to us. Lord, help us to stop seeing all the things that are wrong and broken in this world. Help us to stop wasting spiritual energy on, on fruitlessness. And, and, and help us to just get busy about the mission and watch and see that our marriages don't get better, that our families don't get stronger, that our churches don't get better at, at standing on the truth of God's word. If we would just be about your mission, 
you're there. How do I know? Because you tell us to go and make disciples. And then you say, and lo, I am with you, even to the end of the age. Lord, we want your witness. I want your witness in my life. I need it as I walk out into the world. So help us to be a witness to your witness. In Jesus' name, amen.